Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not a Diving Podcast. Just going to kick off this week by saying thank you to all of you for the good feedback to last week's episode with Duke Dumont. We um, yeah, got into topics on that episode that I wasn't necessarily anticipating and a few of you said that that conversation was different to maybe what you were expecting. Um, he's an interesting guy, actually. He's... Um, unafraid to get into philosophy and the kind of philosophy of, of music making, I guess, in a way which is which is pretty interesting. And um, yeah, it was an unexpected conversation. Certainly aspects of it were anyway. I mentioned last week there were bits and pieces that we didn't get into that I would have liked to have done. So he's definitely someone who I'd have back on the show. And there's going to be a point at which we start getting people back on um, because there's just a lot you can talk to about <laughs> with, with a person. I mean, that's an obvious thing to say, right? But, you know, we've been covering a format where it's sort of a kind of profile type interview and talking in detail about the career of a certain person. But obviously it doesn't have to go like that. I mean, we can just go in with a kind of agenda of points to discuss and approach an episode along those sorts of lines. Um, and it would be different, but equally good potentially. So um, yeah, there's a few people I would definitely have back on. But this week's episode is on that aforementioned format, mostly covering the career of a producer who has been kind of inspirational to me and to lots of people, I'm sure. That's MJ Cole. He is, I don't know, he's just synonymous with, with quality, I guess, his name. I mean, we, 
mentioned him in the plastician episode when we're talking about early grime and it's so i think we we both said well if you're going up against mj cole as a producer then you're just not going to have a lot of luck really in terms of just making quality music and those early grime guys on the playstation were just the kind of antithesis of of his style of production and um yeah it's great to have him on the show we do talk about that that period that early grime period during the course of this conversation and um, the rest of his career too. And we get some of his insights into being classically trained, having that level of technical skill behind you as a producer. I went out on social media and asked, did a kind of straw poll of producers um, who follow me and asked them you know, what kind of level of that kind of background do they have? I used the yardstick of having grade five theory, which is kind of the, the baseline really for it's the baseline for doing music a level in the uk well certainly it was when i did it anyway and i make no judgment about you know people who don't have that level because it's completely possible to make great music without it absolutely it's been proven time and again but it is interesting getting people's backgrounds and the way they perceive those backgrounds too where they perceive it to be important not something we talk about today in the conversation anyway so i'll be back after the main bit to talk about our forthcoming patreon or similar thing that we've been developing i want to get some of your feedback and input on that so i will as i said be talking about that after the main conversation get us in the discord as well to talk about that hotfreshrecordings.com slash discord leave us a review or a rating if you haven't done so already really helps thank you to all of you who have done so um if you haven't please do it i'll be eternally grateful and follow that Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that. Lots of great UK garage in there this week, of course, as well as all the rest of it and all the episodes. So yeah, do that. Anyway, let's just get into it. Without further delay, here is MJ Cole. MJ Cole, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm very good. How are you? Yeah, I'm I'm good, thanks. It's actually way too hot where I am, actually, having said that. Um, I'm really, like, quite suffering in the heat. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. Are you in London at the moment? Yeah, I'm in London. London's kind of um, very nice temperature, sort of 20 degrees-ish, I reckon. Sweet. What have you got there? Oh, it's just, like, way past 30, and I just, I just can't do it. Like, I make a point of getting up really early in the morning, so, like, I get a good amount of, <laughs> like, time during the day where it's not just, like, cripplingly hot. Yeah. But, I mean, I have to have a siesta. I'm, I'm, I live in Mallorca, right? So I'm kind of embracing this mythical Spanish lifestyle, which no one really does anymore anyway. But, I mean, I genuinely do have to sleep for, like, an hour, like, <laughs> in the middle of the day. The siesta, old school siesta, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's not, let's not get bogged down in being English guys talking about weather. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I've got a question to kick off. Which is, um, you are famously a classically trained musician. Yeah. And there's, there's lots of kind of facets to that, which I want to get into throughout the course of this. But just to kick off, how important is knowing theory and being technically skilled at an instrument in making dance music, do you think? Well, it's, it's kind of impossible to say because I don't know any different, really. But, um, you know, I can imagine it's... Um, you know, the best foundation you can have pretty much. And I think, I think, you know, obviously there's the technique. So I was playing piano from when I was pretty young, about five. Um, so there's technique. But I think the main thing about 
you know, classical um, training was training of the ear, really, to listen to things um, and to, you know, transcribe things, uh, repeat melodies back, um, you know, hold on to rhythms, that kind of thing. And then also the, you know, the history of classical music, not in terms of the dates and names, but um, you can see how music developed. And, and I think, you know, especially listening to things like Bach and Mozart, um, the sort of more classical, simpler kind of classical music, I think, you know, that's a great, great foundation for, for, for any musician. But like I said at the beginning, I don't really know any different. So I could, you know, never play the piano in my life and maybe I'd be making the same music. I doubt it because um, the keys feature kind of quite heavily in what I do. But I'm, yeah, I'm glad to have done the classical thing. Yeah, I mean, the technique thing, instrument technique is an interesting one, isn't it? Because, um, you know, the nature of electronic music means that, like, everything's going to be quantized, likely. Um, and and that's definitely true on you know, your certainly your garage stuff is all is all quantized right it's all you know, hit to a swing. How dare you? No, no, that's that's not. I, that's not. No, I've never quantized anything in my life. <laughs> <laughs> now that's not a criticism. It's a it's a it's a feature of of the form, right? It wouldn't sound right if it wasn't. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think um, yeah, in garage stuff, the swing is yeah pretty important. Yeah, I, I mean, it's interesting to think about it in in. Um, like having that technique and then and then not sort of drawing upon it when you're working in a certain in a certain style. I guess what I'm getting at is like having a high level of technique at an instrument. And piano is a, a great example because it's an instrument which fits into the music regardless, mm. right? It's it's, it's mm. not it's it's different to. I mean, I'm I'm a guitar player, but and guitar guitar doesn't really fit that well in into into electronic music really it's it's a bit of an awkward fit actually mm. but i mean just in terms of like having that technique and, and not um i mean do, 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 have you ever found it sort of like frustrating that you can't um or or not that you can't but like it doesn't necessarily fit into how how people perceive that kind of music sounding if that makes sense uh, you mean what my technique sort of overshadows the, you know, s- creative simplicity? Is that what you mean? Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah. I, well, I don't think it does. But I mean, do, do you feel like you have to hold back? I guess is, my, is the question. Oh, I see. I see what you mean. Um, s- not often. I think, y- y- you know, if I'm writing a song with someone and maybe it's sort of more ballad in nature and balladic, I could say, I've just invented that word, um, then uh, I think, yes, certainly there's uh, there's something to be said for leaving space for the vocals because I'll noodle away quite happily. And so I think there are... Uh, there, there are circumstances where, yeah, I do hold back. But generally, um, I manage to squeeze in quite a fair amount, I reckon, and get away with it. <laughs> Okay, so what do you say then to the kind of the, the argument in favour of of not knowing stuff? The argument in favour of like kind of ignorance, I guess, that is often put forward by people who who aren't who don't have that kind of baseline in theory. Mm. You know, it's like you know, I don't want to know too much because it will push me in certain directions. Like, how do you react when people say that sort of thing? What's your reaction to that, that sort of? Yeah, I can associate with that. I mean, the, luckily, I was pretty rubbish at um, music theory and didn't really pay a lot of attention when I was kind of growing up. And, and I was interested in um, technique and then performance, interpretation, expression, that side of it. So when it came to 
writing Bart chorales and harmonising things and doing Haydn quartets and I was pretty rubbish and so um, most of it went in one ear and out the other uh, in terms of, you know, exactly what's going on. So I've kind of sort of um, taken delight in unlearning or just celebrating the fact that I never learned loads of things. Um, so it doesn't, it doesn't uh, cause a stumbling block. Like if I'm writing with someone... Um, I won't be thinking about, oh, this is chord four, this is a, you know, 2B571, or, oh, Bach wouldn't have done that because it's a consecutive fifth, or that kind of thing. I, I really don't think like that. For me, um, playing is is about, you know, ears and hands. You know, your hands move and you hear it and you adjust according to what you're hearing. But, um, yeah, there's bits of it. I mean, like, if, if I'm making a record and... I'm trying to work out what key it's in. As a pianist, I'll think, well, this is basically four sharp, so it's like E major, but it's some kind of, you know, modal thing, as in the scale would start on A. It's probably some Lydian, Phrygian, whatever they're called. Um, so I do think in terms of scales when I'm on the piano. So I'm like, I, I'm playing in E major, uh, and I'll just know the shapes of that and I'll kind of work within that. So that's helpful. But then I get, you know, the main thing, I guess, is the technique, which, um, it, 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 you know, when you've done so much playing, it just becomes second nature. So I'm really lucky to have that technique. You know, there's not many things that I can't play, especially within, you know, making sort of pop music or dance music. You know, if it came to me doing, having to play, a you know, Ratmaninoff piano concerto or something, that would be more tricky i'd have to put the hours in again to do that not that i ever did play one of those but you know what i mean yeah yeah yeah, sure i mean having that like kind of baseline i guess of technique if you do it when you're young then it's just a huge advantage and then you kind of develop your playing style over your career i guess as, as an instrumentalist right particularly within you know popular music and the kind of stuff that, that we do it's like you're not going to spend six hours a day on your you know as as concert pianists might right it's a different thing Mm -mm -mm. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because um, when, up until I was about, you know, 18, when I went to university, I was rubbish. I couldn't um, improvise. If, you know, it was a birthday at home and they're like, go and play happy birthday, I'd just be completely incapable of doing that because I became very, very good at playing a select amount of pieces, you know, from memory perfectly interpreted performed but when it came to just messing around on the piano I was actually rubbish and so when I went to university I started playing in bands um, and doing loads more studio work and I think my current technique the way I play keys and piano and stuff um, developed a lot through those years in terms of improvisation I think the technique was ticked off by then you know I'd, I'd, my fingers were cool but um, I think actually me learning to get my way around the keyboard in an like, improvisational way um, developed from when I was at college. And then obviously now, you know, having spent quite a few years making records, that's what I do every day. I'm constantly on the piano. You know, the piano is like an essential part of my studio. If I'm writing songs with people, it's always piano that I go to, you know. And I feel like most comfortable... Um, in my most comfortable place on the earth is to be sitting at the piano, I think, you know. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned the development of a kind of uh, improvisational skill set. It's funny because it's, 
it really reminds me of my own kind of early musical journey which was you know I also learned to play the piano from a pretty young age but absolutely hated it and hated having to do the practice and ha- hated having to build up what you've just described as that you know being um, essentially a repertoire of pieces that you can play really really well I just mm. I, you know I, I had so many battles over over <laughs> doing practice but then when I was about 12 or 13 I picked up a guitar and could, could immediately just mess around on it yeah and that that motivated me so much more i could just sit down on my own you know, either play along to us to a song or just just jam around and then yeah and i would never put it down do you know what i mean and like you know my mum who tried to make me play the piano was just like wow yeah what is this having put so much into trying to get me to play you know classical pieces on the piano as you say but um, i wanted to ask you you mentioned that you went to university i think it was the royal college of music did you go to no no so i went yeah, I went to Royal College of Music junior department. So while I was at secondary school between 11 and 18, on Saturdays, I used to go to Royal College of Music. And then um, when I, you know, finished A-levels at school, I went to City University in London and did a music degree there for three years. And then what, was that with piano performance as the main focus of that? Not really, no. That, that um, I did have, I had piano lessons at the Royal Academy while I was at university and Guildhall for a bit as well, I think. But um, the course that I did was amazing. You know, for the time, it was like the um, most forward thinking course I did. Um, psychology of music you know um american music studies uh we did sound synthesis uh we had uh, a guy called paul from radio 3 from the bbc came in to teach you know classical recording and then we had another guy um from radio one who came in and taught you know band recording and they had a great studio there with you know a big desk and a live area so i got into kind of I was just addicted to studios by then. I was I was like doing everyone's coursework for them. I used to um, lock myself in the building overnight when it was locked up. I basically used to hide somewhere. They'd lock it all up, and I just have the studio all night. So I did that quite a few times. So yeah, it was an amazing, amazing course. It was uh, a BSc at City University. So I did do piano lessons, but to be honest, by then I'd sort of. Um, gone off the idea of being a you know concert pianist or something I think I was interested in that probably up to about the age of I don't know 14 or something and then I I realized there was this whole new kind of music out there that wasn't being played by my granny and my mum and dad and taught at school it was you know it was like the late 80s when I started going out so I really experienced you know that amazing time when um, it was just a mishmash of styles and there was just stuff flying around everywhere. So that caught my interest. And, and you know, I had a, I think it was a Commodore Amiga computer I had at home uh, and I started messing around on that. And I didn't really look back after that. I kind of knew that I'd wanted to do music, but it was going to be studio based and, you know, involved with all this sort of tech that I just loved. So it, it was kind of perfect, really. So that's kind of exposure to you know studio techniques and engineering as part of your course was that the first time you'd kind of got your hands dirty with studio stuff um i at the royal college of music they they had a studio built probably when i was about you know 13 or 14 and i took the studio sessions the studio studies as like one of my modules so i used to do i think it was two hours every saturday with a guy called mike steer um, in the studios there and that's the first place I ever 
I ever saw a sampler. They had, I think they had an S900 Akai sampler. I remember they had the very first um, Apple Mac Classic, you know, the one that was all in one. They had that with Cubase on. Um, and so that was probably my first experience. And then, yeah, I had an Amiga at home and then I got an Atari ST that had Cubase on. Um, and so I was basically from the age of, I don't know, 15 or something, just staying up all night in my bedroom, just making tunes and then, you know, getting no sleep, going to school and have my Walkman on all day, listening to stuff I'd done the night before. So I was kind of, I was into it from quite an early age. I mean, kids are really into it super early now because you just need a laptop. But um, yeah, I, as soon as I could get my hands on a computer, um, I was off. I didn't have a sampler at the beginning. I just had a, I had a Yamaha SY22, just a synthesizer and Cubase. So I was like making things using drums off a keyboard and a no mixing desk. That's kind of how I started out. What kind of tunes were they? Like what genre? Oh man, I, d I think I was just making quite musical stuff using, you know, flute sounds and um, string sounds, piano sounds, just really sort of basic but quite melodic stuff. I wouldn't say it was any particular genre. I couldn't really work out how I was going out to these clubs and hearing all these amazing records, but I couldn't make them at home. And it took me a while to realise, I think I got a... Um, drum machine at some stage because I thought yeah I need to get a drum machine if I get a drum machine I can do any kind of drums and it, it took me a while to realize that all these drums were samples <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so yeah I think it took me a couple of years to work that out yeah so I was there hammering away trying to get um you know stuff that I was hearing out in clubs to come out of these speakers but only using a, a drum machine and a, a, it you know it didn't didn't really work but then I think I probably got a first sampler when I was I don't know 17 or 18 something like that it was a tiny one new cheetah sx16 it was that had 2.5 seconds of sample time on it oh, i remember those yeah little sort of greens it was like the cheapest sample you could you could possibly get so yeah i can and as soon as i got that i realized you could get a load of vinyl sample breaks and then you, you pretty much got a you know drummer bass tune on the go instantly yeah it's it's the classic mistake for the, the fledgling producer thinking, oh, if I get this one bit of kit, then it's going to be the key to, um, you know, the key to my music. So what, what clubs were you going to then in that period that you just described? What were the tunes that were, you know, that caught your ear? So at the beginning, I would be going to things like, uh, there was a club called Fun City that was in uh, a club called Busby's that used to be next to the Astoria that's not there anymore, but in Charing Cross Road where they've kind of done all the new Tottenham Court Road station. So there used to be a thing called Fun City on Friday nights and used to go there and there'd be people. I mean, I saw Prodigy, Liam, do a live set there really early on. So it, that must have been around the time of his first EP. Which I heard him do Android, I think, which was off the first EP on XL. So there was that. And it was such a weird mishmash of stuff. There was like some Italo house in there. And then there was like, you know, Warp Records, things sort of like um, Outlander and Joey Beltram, Energy Flash, um, Living Dream, all these kind of, um, some of them were slightly housey, some of them were sort of slightly breaksy. Um, so it was a mishmash of all of those, really. But there were people playing there like 
I remember Ray Keith was playing there. Um, their resident guy was sort of Tintin, and they had um, I can't remember who else, but that was the, Fun City at Busby's was the place that it really kind of took off for me. And then I was going to, um, I started going to some of the raves outside London. Used to go to like Energy, Rain Dance, Telepathy. Um, all those kind of things uh, the weekend. So yeah, and you know, rage at uh, heaven on a Thursday night in Cla- in uh, Charing Cross. That was another sort of regular one. Ah, yeah, that was like Fabio and Groove Riders thing. Really? Tell me, tell me about rage. Tell me about rage because I was talking to a guy called Gerald about that a little bit, but I didn't dig into it as much as I wanted to. So yeah, tell me. So rage is the like the classic early jungle night the first jungle night yeah and so it was in Charing Cross down a little alleyway there's a a couple of clubs down there it was a heaven I think it was called the club it's still there actually they I think they just had a 30 year anniversary or something didn't they I think Fabio and Groove Rider did it like a couple of months ago legendary venue yeah and so it's still it's still pretty similar in there I've been in there you know a year ago or something but yeah it, it was mad it was just uh um, you know, big queue down the kind of alleyway off Charing Cross there and, you know, two rooms in there. And yeah, I just used to go in there. And that was the beginning of kind of drum and bass. See, it was interesting at those times because none of these genres were solidified. It was just like electronic music, you know. And like I was saying before, some of it would have kicked, you know, 4-4 four, four kick drums in, but be really fast, kind of like probably the beginnings of happy hardcore what ended up being you know kind of fast italo house kick drums but then on the other side there was sort of much more breaksy stuff happening that i guess turned into jungle and then drum and bass so um yeah it was a mishmash but uh, yeah heaven was um heaven was great i didn't get to go to that one that often because it was on a school night you know and thursday night <laughs> i mean you're totally right about the like the sort of fluidity of genres back then. I mean, the, the, the classic thing with with rage. I mean, I I never went to it. I was I was too young. But I mean, the the classic one was like Fabio playing "Bug in the Bass Bin" by Carl Craig at forty five or whatever, and that was like you know, a proto jungle record, which is which was kind of mind blowing. Really. I mean, the, right bass must have been like not quite there, right, <laughs> for, for that. But like, yeah, I mean, I yeah, I don't know if I experienced that. I probably did. Right, yeah, and then hardcore and jungle sort of emerging from those kind of things i'm pretty sure carl cox played when he was playing hardcore i'm pretty sure he played at rage um but yeah so but you eventually got into garage and garage came out of that kind of thing too didn't it slightly i mean you wouldn't necessarily think about it now if you wouldn't associate uk garage with with hardcore but it definitely was part of that movement wasn't it certainly emerged from it too so Tell me about like how you, how did you end up in Garage? Basically, I guess is what I'm asking, um, because you got into. I'm I'm fairly sure having read previous interviews with you that you you got into working on hardcore label. I think. Yes, yeah, so I went to university. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I left university, and then I just kn- knew I wanted to work in studio. So I just applied, you know, um, <clears throat> put kind of CV together and applied to all the studios. You know, so like. Um, Air Lindhurst, Metropolis Studios, all the kind of big shiny ones. And, you know, I just wanted to um, be a runner, basically, or work in the tape room and kind of work my way up to be a, you know, leather trousers producer, basically. That was my plan. But then, you know, my passion was 
you know, drum and bass and jungle. Um, and so, so I don't know how it came about. The label was called Sour and they were based in um, Victoria, in Strutt and Crown in Victoria. I think I just applied to lo- I could any label that I could find. I just sent a CV off and they got back to me. And so I remember having a, a decision to make. I got offered a runner job at... Um, Air Lindhurst, which was George Martin's place up in Hampstead, like massive. For anyone who doesn't know, it's like still one of the major places where orchestras are recorded. Like a, ma- it's a converted church, beautiful big live room, um, and then loads of other studios there with you know just full of SSLs and Neves and tape machines, like a proper high end studio. They offered me a runner's job, and at the same time, Sour offered me a job as well. Um, and Sauer was kind of doing things like uh, shy effects and um, elements of noise, T-Power, those kind of acts. Uh, and they offered me something as well. So I had to sort of make this choice between going right in at the bottom, a very big studio, or um, going to go and work at a, you know, uh, independent um drum and bass label and so I just decided to go for the drum and bass thing because that was kind of like where my passion was so so I got into that and I was just being a runner doing odd jobs copying tapes uh, and then I began to get in on sessions and just helping out in sessions and within you know a couple of sessions they worked out that I could play you know and quite often people who were doing the sessions weren't that great at keys so I'd just be the runner but I'd step in and just play chords and they'd be like that's amazing how can you do that so I just play you know I play piano so I got into doing that and then certain people asked me to come back to the sessions because I played and I started engineering for them um and then they that that label Sour um had a sort of um arrangement with some guys up in Dalston and they opened another studio up in Kingston Road by the canal um, a new studio there you know what I I recorded a demo with a band that I was in in about 1995 it was like the first band demo that I ever did and I subsequently realized it was at that studio in Dalston crazily enough and we were playing like indie music it was, it was oh was it one. Yeah, yeah yeah but that's sorry that's a sidebar carry on wow so it was like underneath a underneath the um gold shop it was like a gold shop on the ground floor and you went downstairs and there was just a little studio at the back um so so yeah i got in there and i was kind of doing many more sessions then and then the the guys who owned the label got friendly with um the guys from london underground which was a pirate radio station that was kind of running out of dalston uh, those kind of sides and so i was just doing sessions so i'd be the engineer and whoever came in and we'd make a track together um, and so some of the DJs from London Underground started coming to the studios because they, you know, were kind of associated with the guys who owned the label. Um, and so I'd only made drum and bass and was only interested in drum and bass. Um, and then it just so happened that some of these DJs came in, you know, the record box. Uh, and we're like, yeah, I want to make a, you know, garage record, 130 BPM. And then they just kind of whip out their records and sit there with a deck and we just sample all these records. And then I kind of learned on the fly, really, to make that kind of music just by listening to what they were playing and then trying to kind of copy it and do it in my own slightly twisted way with their encouragement as well. And, you know, they'd say, no, 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 this should be 16 bars or no, the bass should be bigger or kick drum should be blah, blah, blah. You know, so it was kind of like the perfect environment, really. And, and, And I found within 
minutes that suddenly I was like, man, I'm, I'm much better at doing this than I was at making um, jungle or drum and bass because suddenly there was room for keys, there was room for chords, there was room for, you know, melody and harmony and it didn't have to be so minimal. I think my drum and bass stuff was always just too full and too musical. And so, I, I you know, I loved it. And, and basically I did all those early vip records eps at that time so i did eps with um ramsey and fenn daryl b um naughty be nice pisces greg stainer all these things we did three track eps and i did all of those in that studio and then really from then um those guys who that i was working with on those eps started to get asked to do remixes you know other studios and they wanted me to come along so we'd have the same you know combo going on and that's what kind of led to me starting to do stuff myself and you know so that's it's quite a long-winded thing but yeah that, that's how it happened basically <laughs> it's really interesting that you say um that your kind of musicality was got in the way a little bit when you were making jungle you know just in the context of what you were saying earlier about you know having that technical skill you know and the kind of the theory and all the rest of it and you know you eventually landed in a style which enables you to give that a little bit more of a platform right yeah it's it, it, and it happened completely by accident you know i i when i went out and there was uh, a drum bass room and a sort of chill out garagey house room i was i walked through that garage in house room as quick as anybody you know i didn't <laughs> right. want to have anything to do with that i was like straight into the drama bass room um wearing a sweaty champion top you know with my head inside the bass bins that was where i was happy so it was mad that suddenly uh, you know i was in the studio and i found that i had a sort of an affinity and i found it it was like a challenge for me as well because I was listening to this music that I didn't really know anything about, but I was kind of learning on the fly and just listening to the way the records were. And I remember kind of um, having bits of vinyl there and turning the power off on a Technics and just pushing the vinyl around really slow to hear the like, you know, hearing how the drums were put together. And that's really how I I still do that quite often now. People who watch my Twitch streams and stuff will know when I'm when I'm doing a beat, I quite often start at 80 BPM and because of my piano prowess I like to play everything in on the keyboard I never really use the pencil at all so I slow it down to like 80 BPM and play the drums in you know like that and and actually play it in and I think that comes from those initial days of listening to vinyl turning the power off and slowing it down to analyze something so yeah I just analyzed it with my sort of music classically trained analytical ear i guess and kind of didn't perfectly copy it but it you know the, the way it was different ended up being kind of slightly unique so i think that's kind of why i started um i developed my own sound because i kind of was, was getting it a bit wrong really or just interpreting it in my way so i guess quite a lot of me came into that music because there were no boundaries or I didn't think like no no they wouldn't play that or that's too fast or no this should be like this or this guy did a tune a bit like that or he sampled that I didn't have any of those constraints it was just literally like I'm in a session I'm getting played these records um I'm here with a DJ who knows all this music inside out and we're just going to make it work and yeah it was um it was it's kind of magic time I didn't really 
think about it as I was going along, but it just evolved, you know, and I just loved being in the studio. I used to have a sleeping bag in that studio and just sleep in there the whole time. They'd be like, do you want to do the night session tonight? I'm like, yeah. Do you want to do the day session tomorrow? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> I just used to live on nourishment and Chinese takeaway from next door, basically. Number 27 was my favourite. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah. I mean, like, I think when there's when you're at the start of a of the development of a genre, you do just get much more freedom, I think, in terms of the way, you know, in terms of what people expect from that genre, you know? And if you're able to be to be there and, and kind of give your own twist to things and you know, you said that doing it wrong, but like it's actually, you know, it's obviously not wrong, is it? Because it's like developing a style. Um I wanna talk a bit more about that, but just going back to something you said before about um house and garage was traditionally the kind of room two in those big jungle raves and you you mentioned like there was a chill out thing and i'd never i'd never thought about it like that but i guess i guess that was sort of part of it right because i mean i was i've had a few conversations about early garage on this show so far and like for example i was talking to tiger about it and he had no idea that garage was the room two of the jungle thing like it was totally a surprise to him right but I mean, do you have any insights into how that happened? I mean, past that, you know, it's kind of like needing to put something a bit less you know, energetic in, in room two. Yeah, I mean, I, I a, a club that I went to a lot was um, Laserdrome in Peckham. Um, and, and that was, um, uh, yeah, I don't know when that ran from. It probably ran from, you know, like 1990 till 93 or something like that. Um, and my mate used to do the projections in the chill-out room. And so there were two rooms. You come up the stairs at Laserdrome, and uh, it was called Laserdrome because during the week it was a laser quest place, you know, where you had kind of targets and lasers, and there were all these kind of gangways and walkways and, like, colourful stuff and undercover things. So it was an amazing place to have a rave because it wasn't just a big open room. This is the main room. It It was a laser quest place. And then... So the first room you came into was, I guess when it was a Laser Quest place, it was like the cafe. You know, it had like a tiny little bar. It had Street Fighter game in there, um, some chairs. And that's what turned into the sort of house and garage room. And, and yeah, it was a chill out space. It was kind of supposed to be a breakout space from the main action that was going on in the main room. So my mate used to um, run the projections in there. He worked for like a video higher place and we had this massive barco lethal like crt like humming huge projector thing we used to carry in there and we had like um you know i, th- I think it was a vhs player and we just used to loop all these films around and um so the people in there they'd be sort of house and garage playing but it was also the chill out room so it was definitely like it was a breakout area. It was like a secondary thing. And the main focus in there w- was the, you know, drummer-based jungle room. So I- I'm not sure about ha- how it was different at different places because I never went to any garage or house things uh, out of choice until I started making records. And then I got, you know, I got a buzz out of going to these things and suddenly hearing records that we'd done in a tiny little studio in Dalston 
on some massive system and people going mad. And that was like amazing buzz. And then, you know, I started DJing after that. Yeah, that's a great feeling, isn't it? Yeah, I'd spent um, my whole childhood with Deck Technics, you know, going down to the record shop, going to sort of Black Market, Uptown, City Sounds in the middle of town, um, and just bedroom DJ mixing. But all of that was was jungle and drum and bass. But then it's kind of weird. When I started to get asked to DJ, it's because I was making records. So I never actually got to DJ the music that I'd been practising all those years and loving. Um, you know, I, I was playing garage records, basically. <laughs> so that's, that was a separate question I had, actually. It's like your kind of route into DJing is a kind of side thing because you've always been seen much more as a producer, I think, than a DJ. But obviously you are a DJ and you've, you know, you've played, no doubt, hundreds of shows over the years. But like, so what, like at what point did you start buying records? Like how old were you? Like, you know, was going to the record shop like a really important thing from early on? Yeah, I think I I started probably buying records when I was, I don't know, 14, 15, something like that. I think I used to go to... Uh, Groove Records in Greek Street in Soho. Um, and, and I remember going in there buying stuff like, oh, um, you know, hip house records like Tony Scott. And then there'd be, you know, Public Enemy stuff coming out as well. And there'd be things like SL Troopers from South London in Norwood and, you know, early kind of rap things. And they'd have things like um, all the Bones Breaks records, you know, that just had kind of breaks on and the sort of Frankie Knuckles stuff. And that's what I was buying to start with. And then I started going to, you know, discovering other record shops and going to, yeah, to Black Market. City Sounds in Holborn was one of my main things. So I went to school around the corner. So I used to like pinch a fiver out of my dad's wallet and then just, you know, run down there at lunchtime. And that's where um, Ray Keith worked. And and um, yeah, he worked in there with a guy called Dave who ran that shop. So that was like my, you know, school uniform, lunch break, go and buy some tunes thing. So yeah, it started from there really. Yeah, City Sounds developed into a really key garage shop, didn't it, if I recall correctly yeah it did when it was there in 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 holborn um it was a sort of a mixture and then he moved to kirby street in clerkenwell farringdon and and then it was like solely solely garage i remember todd came in there one day um you know from the states and kind of played live in the shop and it was rammed and yeah so when i was buying garage records though i used to I was mostly going to, yeah, Uptown and then also Pure Groove up in Archway because I ended up living up there for a bit in Tufnell Park. So they were kind of my main things. And then obviously as I started DJing stuff, you know, back in those days you just got sent absolutely tons of vinyl in mailers like the whole time that like everything just got sent through so um i began to amass quite a few bits like that and then obviously i was making tunes so started you know cutting plates i actually learned to cut um myself oh really when i had a i, I was used a studio in reading yeah of, um uh record basement vinyl distribution up in reading um i kind of used their studio a bit and they bought a neumann lathe and the guy um, I think his name was Paul. It's like an uh, old guy, one, one of the only people kind of left, one of the original kind of lathe guys, and he taught us how to cut. So at one stage, I was just buying like 12-inch blank dubs from Transco and just taking them to the studio with me, to, making a record, and then actually cutting my own plates and then taking them out to play, which was pretty mad. 
Wow, that's that's amazing. I've never heard anyone say that before. That's crazy. Um, mm. Okay, so I want to go back a little bit. One of the one of the big things I want to get out of this conversation is is a little bit of a roadmap of how Garage developed from that kind of early period. Yeah. So can you tell me a little bit about how? Because obviously, well, we we just mentioned that it kind of started off as a kind of room to like sort of pseudo chill out thing, but obviously, like fairly quickly became this kind of like certainly in london this kind of all-encompassing thing it was like just dominating pirate radio and just just everywhere so Mm. can you tell me a little bit about how that development sort of came to pass from your perspective having been kind of like you know as a kind of studio head during the period that was all going on yeah so from my perspective my perspective was one of someone who just spends their whole life in a studio i really had um no interest in anything else other than being in the studio that was my sort of sole purpose so i can tell you what it was like from my point of view like making records i don't think i was that knowledgeable about um which nights were on or what was going i was going to them but normally i just i'd be working with someone in the studio and they'd have a gig that night so i'd like go along with them you know this is before i started playing but i noticed obviously my experience of how the music was developing and changing was really to do with the records that people were bringing into the studio to to sample and to play. Like, um, when I made records with DJs, they'd always bring their record box. You know, that was kind of like what they'd bring to the session. I'm not saying they weren't, you know, any good at, you know, making records or whatever, but they, they'd bring the raw materials. And this was kind of before the time of, you know, sample CDs or Splice or any of that. So really, we were making tracks just from sampling vinyl. So a lot of vinyl was coming through the studio. And, and, you know, I definitely saw it at the beginning. It was um, these US garage B-sides that were just dub mixes without any vocals that people were playing at plus eight. You know, they were quite slow. They were probably like you know, 124 BPM records and they were sort of plus eighting them up to, I don't know, whatever that would be, plus thir- um, 130 or around that sort of region. So I noticed that was going on and there was a lot of US stuff. There was a lot of records with shrink wrap on, you know, imports. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. gradually the shrink wrap sort of disappeared more and more as more of this kind of new garagey sound was being you know, made and manufactured in London and in the UK and I guess elsewhere as well. So, yeah, the shrink wrap started to dissipate and there'd be more UK stuff coming through Um, and it got faster, it definitely got faster and it just started to... Um, it was like a big cyclic thing, really. You know, pirate radio was so big then, it was like pre-internet and, um, you know, the source of your inspiration would be from just walking around London and like people having their windows down in their car and playing you know Freak FM or you know all these different pirate stations I'm uh, you know I lived out in West London and I remember having um like the just draping loads of wires out of my bedroom window just (laughs) trying to pick up some of these stations that were mostly broadcasting from east and you know i was a long way away and you know if the wind was right or atmospheric conditions i'd be able to pick up you know certain stations so really for, for me 
it was about those records that were coming into the studio that people were, they were really upfront records because these were like really current DJs and they were doing radio shows every week. So I was listening to them, analysing them um, and then, you know, listening to the, 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 the pirate stuff as well. And I just heard it get faster. The US thing kind of started to take a back seat as, the, as there was more stuff coming out of the UK. Um, and it kind of became... I think the music became less smooth. The US stuff was pretty smooth. The A-sides were normally like really well-produced vocals. And then it was really that sort of B-side sped up, slightly rough and ready twang that the UK picked up. And then that filtered through to the records that I was hearing. And then when I started going out to those clubs with DJs and stuff, that you know, that's what I was hearing there. Yeah, absolutely. So were there... Are there like kind of key tunes that you could kind of pinpoint in that kind of early period where it was, um, you know, the UK was beginning to sort of like take over from those US tracks being played sped up? Well, I mean, from my point of view, the, the first garage record that I ever made was with Ramsey and Fenn and it was the um, Kim Mazel track, Quality. We did a, a remix of a track called Quality and that was the first garage thing I'd ever done, literally. And, um, you know, I remember going out and hearing that. So what year was that? I don't know. It must be like, um, I don't know, 96, yep. maybe, maybe beginning of 97, something like that. I left college in 95 and then I started working at Sour um, probably the end of 95, beginning of 96. So, yeah, maybe it was the end of 96, something like that. Um so, I, you know, I'm just talking, like, again, from a studio monkey's point of view, you know, I started to hear that was really, like, the first UK kind of thing for me. And then, you know, the popular things in the club would be, um, you know, Roy Davis Jr., like, Gabrielle, and um, some of the, you know, baffled stuff. Um, what else? I'm trying to think. I'm, you know, I'm very unknowledgeable about tunes. I just, I know what I hear and I know how to make them. <laughs> but yeah, I definitely noticed it getting more rough and ready and, you know, faster and skippier and more raw. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sure. And so from, from your stuff, like what was the first one of yours that you felt kind of made an impact? Um, what, a garage record, you mean? Yeah. Um, that would have been... I mean, it was... Um, 
Yeah, I did my own EP on VIP. I made, I was just making tracks at home while I was doing sessions with other people. And I had a three track EP that didn't actually come out for a couple of years after that time, I don't think. And I did a track called, I think, W. Um, I can't remember what else was on there. I think there were three tracks on it. But I'd done those at home. And then, you know, I made Sincere the record pretty early on it's probably like in the first five or ten tunes that i ever made you know and i did that in my bedroom wow really <laughs> yeah i did that in my bedroom with a atari st with cubase and then just a akai sampler and nothing else in fact i found it the other day i've still got the dat recording um from my bedroom where I've just connected one lead from the sampler, like just the left-hand side to the <laughs> left-hand side of the DAT machine. So it's just like one side and it's pretty much all there. I think because I, I got to use the studio in Dalston at night. Who did the vocal though? That's from a sample CD. There was a sample CD called Killer Vocals 2 and it was just t tons of little bits of vocals. Really? Yeah. And it's actually... The, the the lady singing on it, it's actually two different women, Nova Casper and JD. They were kind of the vocalists on this sample CD. And if you actually look into all the different bits of that Sincere record, it's actually two different voices. It's just bits from all over the sample CD sort of strung together. Um, so, yeah, I did that in my bedroom, just on Akai Sample. And then because I was working in the studio in Dalston, I had access to go in there. So I remember when I did Sincere, um, I kind of programmed it up at home, just the main mix, went into the studio, um, you know, loaded up my samples there. And I think I added like a sort of Rhodes line over the top, um, a couple of bits and then mixed it down. And then I did the... The dub mix, like the same night, I used to do that. Go to the studio with something prepared, sort of mix it down properly, and then it would be normally sort of two in the morning or something, and I'd be like, right, I'm going to do a dub mix. And I'd do a dub mix in, you know, three or four hours or something um, on the back of having mixed down the vocal one. It was kind of quite nice because it felt like you had the vocal one in the bag and you'd finish that, and then the dub was just like playtime. It was like do whatever you want. You've got one in the bag just do something rough and quick and ready. And I think that's where a lot of the, you know, dubs came from. Yeah, that was the thing, wasn't it? It's a vocal mix and dub mix. It doesn't really happen like that so much anymore. But that was that was absolutely it. Yeah. I've started doing that again more recently, actually. Yeah, the last things I had out, you know, in the last month, um, you got me in... Um, what's the other one called? I've forgotten now. I need. I did. I did dubs of those, which were you know l like I used to in the old days, and spelling a dub with two Bs. So yeah, I'm kind of getting back into that now. It's nice when you're doing mixes of things to have something that's not feel you're trying to compromise. That you can do a vocal mix or a more sort of radio listening mix. Uh, and not kind of have to try and make it harder or bumpier or more club ready and then just go completely the other way with a dub and think, right, well, I don't need any vocal. I'm just going to make something that I'd want to stick on a platter and play, you know. Absolutely. Okay, so basically by the time Sincere came out, which was like 98, I believe. I'm fairly sure it was then. Yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. Like Garage was just a huge thing and it just taken off and it was there was loads of tunes in the charts and this there was you know it was just you know it was the big thing in the kind of uk i guess underground quite quite underground club circuit but not just underground obviously as i mentioned like tunes in the charts all over the place so 
prior to Sincere, how much how much DJing had you been doing? Because obviously Sincere was this huge thing, and I'm, well, I have a question about that. But like before that came out, like where were you sort of career wise in in terms of like yourself as an as an artist as a sort of solo artist? I mean. Um, nowhere. I was just uh, a studio monkey, basically, making tunes with other people. Um, and then I had decks at home and I'd just be playing jungle and drum and bass at home and then going to work and, and kind of making garage records. And so I didn't ever DJ as a garage DJ until, you know, Sincere came out and I started... Um, doing a load of remixes and things like that. So it all came from that. And you're right, it's going back to what you said earlier. I kind of, I've never thought of myself as a DJ. I get quite, I get a bit funny when, you know, you meet someone in your family or something and they go, oh, you're a DJ, aren't you? It's like, no, I'm not a DJ. I'm a musician. You know, I make music is what I do. And then DJing is like a fun add-on bit you know and I, I i feel quite strongly about that i don't know there's probably some psychological reason for it but um yeah i definitely think of myself as being uh, well, i mean djs have a bit of a bad reputation don't they y- yeah i mean i prefer I, I prefer making music than just playing other people's i think what it is you know i love djing but um y- if i had to choose one it would be studio 10 times over easily okay so so basically sincere hits and it's a massive tune immediately. I, well, that was my perception of it anyway. Like, what was it like for you? Like, when, when it was coming out, did you know it was going to be a big track? Because sometimes it's difficult to, difficult to predict, you know, how a track's going to do. Yeah, I mean, I had no idea about that record. I, um, I remember having made it and taking it to a distributor with my manager at the time and um, playing them that record. And they were like, it's all right, you know, you should make something a bit more like this. So it kind of got knocked back. And I just thought, oh, that's cool. You know, it's just, I'm, I'm, you know, just making stuff, see how it goes. And it was, I think it was, um, you know, basically I, there was a guy called Arthur who ran vinyl distribution in Reading and had the record basement and a studio there, the one that had the lathe in. He kind of heard this record somehow and he sort of took me under his wing and I kind of left that sour um camp and kind of defected to the the record basement camp and so I I I was just going driving to Reading and doing nights in the studio there and it was the guy Arthur there who who heard the sincere record and so it when it first came out it came out on Metrics Records which was his own record label and that was all very much through Reading and then um Pete Tong got sent it heard it somehow and apparently you know he i think he made it his essential new tune like 3 weeks in a row or 2 weeks in a row or something like that but i had no idea who Pete Tong was i didn't know i'd never listened to his radio show i didn't know what essential new tune was and i think it all just started going a bit mad from there but i i had no idea it was kind of great i had no expectations so it you know. wasn't so hang on a sec let me let me sorry let me just cut in and ask you so it wasn't played loads on promo wasn't played on dub by you know the garage guys it wasn't like that at all well i uh, do you know what i think it yeah it was played on dub i remember jason k um was probably the first person to cut a dub of it um and i remember hearing him play at powerhouse in tottenham or somewhere around that i remember going along and hearing him play it for the first time so yeah there were dubs that had been cut um and that must have been how 
you know, Arthur at Record Basement vinyl kind of heard it. I'm not, I'm not sure really. I was just pretty much, you know, I was just interested in going to the studio <laughs> and that was it. You know, I just, I just, what, that's all I wanted to do. I wasn't really interested in like having a big record or. No, I, I, I'm, I'm getting that, getting that impression. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but I heard about this Pete's, Sorry, no, no, I heard ahead. about this Pete Tong thing and that everyone's kind of making a massive deal about it. And I'm like, well, I what does that mean? But then it all started to go a bit mad from there. And, you know, that's when I started my prolific recordings record label as well. Probably 97, I did the early stuff like Flavor Fever, Talk To Me, Guilty. All that stuff came from the, that studio in Reading. Um, and I remember, you know, it's funny, I can remember exactly where I made all my all my records so you know in Dalston at the, the early days that's where I did Sincere that's where I did all the VIP EPs with all those um, DJs that I mentioned before and then I kind of went to Reading and I'd done Sincere already but that's kind of what got me into Reading and then in Reading I did um, started my label like I said before Talk To Me Talk Box um, Guilty Flavor Fever I did Your Mine with Guy Simone there I did things like the um uh, Glamour Kids remix, I remember doing that. Nights Over Egypt remix in that studio. Um, and then I started I started using another studio in, in Soho Square. Um, and yeah, it's, it's funny, isn't it? Basically, all I talk about is studios because that's kind of like all I knew. I wasn't really, I wasn't really interested in like, yeah, I want to go out to this night. It's kind of, I guess it's sort of, it feels like I did my going out and raving between the ages of like 16 and 22 and for me that was all drum and bass and jungle that's all it was and then so when the garage thing came along it kind of was like extension of the studio it was a completely different world so I didn't really live socially in that world I was just a studio junkie basically he was just salivating to kind of uh, you know make the next record and I'd hear records out and I'd get you know super jealous I'd be like really envious like oh my god I remember hearing a Zed Bias record I think it's Standler Hoodlum um, you know, reflex action, like a snake, like a snake, like a snake. Hearing that and just, I remember playing that in Reading because they were vinyl distributors, right? So they had all the vinyl there and they were doing the sales on the phone next door. And they the way they used to do it, and it was like they had a, a deck, a normal landline phone. They'd ring up the record shops and play them the records down the phone. They'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'll take two boxes of that, one box of that. So they had all these things lying around. I think I heard that. Zed Bias thing then and I was just like mate how's he how's he made this record it's like 10 times better than what I can do and that just kind of inspired me it's like right I'm going in tonight I'm going in tonight I'm going to do something better than that you know so that was sort of my existence really that's it's great when you have that kind of inspiration isn't it because I mean I think basically everyone if there isn't a musician in the world who doesn't have that when they yeah, hear, a, hear a track it's like oh my god this is this is sick but like fuck how can i do something better than this and it's like it's such a it's such a great like bit of creative inspiration that kind of thing you're right that that tune is is, is fucking massive yeah yeah it is so okay i what i want to get to then is your going from having this kind of what became a big hit record but kind of slowly judging by what you've just said up to you releasing the sincere album which took a couple of years Mm. But but then definitely put you sort of I guess in the public eye as an as an artist much more than 
just a kind of stu- studio board, right? As you've been sort of portraying yourself. So yeah. <laughs> t- 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 tell me about that. Because was was sincere? Was it on talking loud? Am I right in thinking that the album? No. So the story behind so sincere, as I said, the 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 single came out on Metrics Records first, and then Simon Dunmore, who now has Defected Records, he he heard it, and then he um. Yeah, he wanted to... He put it out on AMPM. He was running AMPM records with Janet Bell. Um, and, you know, from one of those... From down... When when all the record labels used to be in Hammersmith, down by the river there. And I think, yeah, he... Did he put... Yeah, I think he did put it out on AMPM. I'm not sure about this now. But he... Then Simon Dunmore was like, we want you to do an album... Um, and Arthur in Reading also wanted me to do an album. I think he signed me for an album, actually. He got in really quickly. Like he, He's the first person who really discovered my music and really understood it. But then all the majors kind of got interested, and it ended up they did a deal somehow. I don't know what happened, um, where I ended up speaking to AMPM, and then I ended up speaking to London Records. Pete Tong was running London Records then with Phil Faversham, and then in the you know same building there was Giles Peterson. You had Talking Loud, so it kind of went a bit mad. And suddenly everyone wanted to sign me for an album, and it was AMPM, um, London Records, and Talking Loud. And I just um, I just loved everything Talking Loud were doing. You know, I'm kind of like a Rhodes fiend, and they had you know. I don't know what, you know, brand, was it brand new heavies and just all this kind of like really decent music that I just loved. Um, so, and I really got on with Giles well and Paul Martin, who was kind of like his, um, you know, other, other A&R guy there. So yeah, Sincere came with the album came about, you know, by signing to Talking Loud. And then when the album came out in 2000, Sincere as a single came out two years before. So it was like re-released as a single. Um, and then obviously, you know, that album, I probably kind of wrote that album between 98 and 2000. So bits of it were in Reading. I remember doing Your Mind there, Tired Games, the last track on that album I definitely did there. And then I got my own room uh, in Soho somewhere and that's where I did like Crazy Love with Elizabeth and things like I See with Elizabeth as well. Um, and did that rough, rough, rough out here cover with all strings and horns on it and stuff. And then, so yeah, and then obviously that came out in, I think it came out in 2000, the album Sincere, right? I think so. Man, it's so long ago, all of this. It's amazing. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, 2000 was like, probably like the peak UK garage in terms of like it's the like the attention it had and you know how it was dominating clubs and dominating radio and dominating charts but I mean what I'm getting from you is that you didn't really like identify with garage that much it was sounds like it was more of a kind of a vehicle for your music is that is that a fair comment yeah I think that's a very fair comment um I I I don't think I lived the garage lifestyle or anything. I, you know, it's not that I was not interested in it, but for me, it was yeah a purely musical thing. It wasn't like a status thing or a social thing or a way to have success and be 
you know, I don't know, adored for that reason. It was purely like, I'm I'm a studio bod. I love making music. I want to make the best music I possibly can. Um, and it, yeah, it really just all came from there. And I, you know, um, it was weird when I had to go and DJ at clubs, and there'd be, you know, you couldn't wear trainers. You know, I'd never gone to a club. I'd never worn a pair of shoes, you know. i just go out in my champion top and my scruffy trainers, you know. And um, it was kind of mad when suddenly it was like, oh, yeah, you have to, you know, there's people wearing shirts and I was going to do DJ gigs. And having, I had a special pair of shoes that were for my DJ gigs, you know, that I'd only wear going to them. <laughs> and then the rest of the time I'd just be sort of lunching around in trainers. So, yeah, it was it was sort of... I didn't, I didn't get, in, you know, enveloped in, in that whole thing. It wasn't like I lived and breathed it at all. It was, um, you know, just... Uh, yeah, I guess it was a vehicle for... On a deeper level, it was um, a vehicle for expression. You know, I suddenly found... A portal through which I could like express myself and that you know that gave me a buzz and I got a feedback loop going that um, just encouraged me more and more and I'd listen to records and be jealous about them and want to kind of make a better record and you know I was just uh, really you know inspired by that on a you know on a sort of soulful and a and a um, personal level, I think, you know, more than being, yeah, yeah, I'm going to go down this rave and da 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 and he said this and that and blah, blah, and politics and all that kind of stuff. You know, I wasn't, I was quite happy to be in the studio, <laughs> as you might have noticed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, the way the Sincere album was marketed was definitely like, this is a garage thing. Like, the artwork was very much, to the extent that it was like champagne bottles, like, you know, in, on some of the singles artwork. Uh, and very yeah. much kind of identi- very much identifying with that kind of that that side of garage because like what was beginning to happen in in 2000 and into 2001 was the early grime thing was beginning to happen and I wanted to ask you about that because I had Plastician on the show a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about I mean he was very much involved in that very early grime sound and we were talking about how there was a bit of a sort of division mm. like that kind of opened up between the um you know the kind of quote unquote old, old garage heads and then these kids making, you know, tunes on on PlayStation. So, I mean, how did you how did you view that as it was happening? Um, oh, can I just say about the artwork for Sincere? We we yeah, were yeah. a bit clever with that because although it was um, a champagne bottle, um, it, the, the whole idea behind the artwork that it was a twist on the stereotypical imagery. So there was uh, one of them, I think it was Hold On To Me, was like a Rolex watch or something in a box, but the watch was burnt. And, you know, I think with Crazy Love, it was a champagne bottle, but it had oil coming out of it. And then I think one of the other ones was like a high-end fashion bag, but it it was on fire. So it was kind of like, uh, these are the expected images from this genre, but this is a little bit different and it's a little bit twisted, you know, so that was the idea behind the artwork. But sorry, yeah, to get onto the, uh, what Plastician was saying about, um, what were you saying again? It was like there the was sort of a division that came at the beginning of the noughties. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as, as that kind of sort of MC-led style started to sort of gain popularity, there was seemingly this, um, well, there definitely was like a bit of a, 
a bit of a divide that opened up and there was from from looking at it from afar yeah you know, i'd been you know a sort of bedroom dj during that sort of like late 90s period and you know started to play a few shows make a few tunes and i was definitely in that you know quote unquote like proper garage kind of camp and when when the grime thing started happening i, I was scratching my head a little bit but obviously, you know, not to the extent as all the DJs who'd spent the 90s like building up this garage sound, right? And then suddenly there's these bu- <laughs> a bunch of kids making crazy sounding music on, you know, no equipment. So yeah, I, I just wanted to get your take on really and how you viewed that as a studio guy as well, you know, because a feature of that music was that it was so lo-fi. Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I've never been the kind of person who's like, thinks you can steer... Uh, musical genres and that you can steer musical development you know that you can kind of coax it into the particular direction you want it to go in I mean I remember at one stage it must have been early 2000s you know that a couple of the DJs called like a meeting you know uh, to get all the garage DJs together to talk about the fact that there was loads of what what music going on, which was basically like really bass heavy stuff that had lost that kind of poise and magic that came from US Garage, you know, that kind of more silky, well-produced, soul-based thing. And, and they were really like, they called a meeting to try and convince everyone to stop, to not play those records, to sort of boycott those records and to keep it, keep it kind of soulful because they were trying to sort of, um, you know, steer the course of that music. But you, you can't do that. Music's such a beautiful thing. It's so unquantifiable, so intangible. You know, it's just going to go its own way, which I love about it. It's so beautiful that people can't really steer it. And and that's just the way, you know, it always happens like that in music. You get a kind of more soulful, melodious stage. This has happened in house music loads of times. Uh, and then it gets all stripped back and it becomes, you know, kind of much more techy and synth-based. And the same sort of thing happened in Garage, you know. It became much more MC-led. Um, it was just something new, right? You can't carry on. Nothing lasts forever. And it just it just felt appealing. And, uh, you know, I didn't sort of immerse myself, in you know, in, in that side of things. Although, you know, I made a lot of records with... Um, I guess more sort of mainstream MCs. You know, I did record with like Elephant Man. I did record with like Rodney P. Um, and then Fallacy. You know, Danny Vicious. People like that. Um, but yeah, I I sort of wasn't really involved in the sort of PlayStation type thing. And to be honest, I found it um, it was just a little bit too unmelodious for me. It's kind of like my Harmony Police radar went off a little bit. But, you know, um, I was very happy for that to be developing, you know, because I'm just like a champion of music and whichever way it's going to go, it's going to go and just, you know, enjoy the journey. I love those sort of scene meetings. Like those things are just incredible to me, right? I was talking to Deebridge about the kind of a similar sort of thing happening in drum and bass, probably around the same time, maybe a bit earlier, a couple of years earlier, maybe, you know, when that whole tech step kind of thing was happening. Um, and it was going in a, a similar sort of direction in drum and bass and the kind of attempts to 
yeah, like set set arbitrary like BPM levels and that and that sort of thing. It's just crazy, isn't it? It's mad. Yeah. W- were you at that meeting that you just talked? No, to? I didn't go to that meeting. Um, I wasn't wasn't interested really in in going to anything like that. But going back to what you said about tech step and stuff, I remember that happening when I was still working at Sour in um, Victoria. Um, that you know, it was quite quite breaksy. All the sort of shy effects stuff was kind of breaksy, and then um, and then the Paris break came along. That was and the you know Alex Reese Metropolis came along, and yeah, this tech step thing sort of started. And these guys, Elements of Noise, that were signed to Sour, they started doing a lot of stuff like that. They started putting out like a lot of DJ Trace records that were kind of quite tech steppy, and it was just like Apache mixed with the Paris break, and it became a lot more. Um, kind of mechanical and a lot more kind of scientific. So I guess that's just another example of the way that, um, you know, music just morphs. Yeah, it happened in drum and bass earlier, but yeah, it, you know, it happened in Garage as well and the whole like MC thing snowballed and um, I guess you're going to ask me about it, but then it kind of turned into the whole, you know, it got a bit more moody and, you know, suddenly people were, you know, there was violence involved and, you know, police were shutting things down and, I had to go and DJ places and, you know, fill in a form and send your passport scan in before you went to play and stuff like that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So um, my question was really going to be like, I mean, those things that you just described. So basically, as you said, like the a level of violence at, at raves just got a bit out of control. And there was a certain amount of I think kind of like racial profiling going on by the police mm. in terms of like who was going to these raves and and you know the the famous form that you referred to as well the name of which I can't remember but we talked about it with Roscoe when he was on the show too which was you know just a naked attempt to to shut down a music scene basically as far as I could see anyway yeah so tell me yeah tell me about that and tell me about how it affected you how it affected your career because it must have done to an extent um, how do you mean what the whole violence thing or, or the, the, the way it kind of started going a bit more grimy? Yeah, that development, like, so, you know, it didn't kill Garage, but it definitely had a detrimental effect on it over those kind of early 2000s years. Mm. Yeah, I think it, um, you know, I noticed it, you know, when my record Sincere came out, that was like, you're completely right, Um uh it was you know the kind of glory was it was the absolute pinnacle and you know 2000 was when i got nominated for the mercury prize and won like mercury um mobo awards and brit nominations and it was all kind of like very all nice and you know shiny and then it sort of yeah it kind of got a bit darker and went a bit more twisted and bass heavy and it just got you know when you went out to play it was suddenly a, a lot more moody uh, and the records that people were appreciating were a lot, you know, darker and less melodious. So I couldn't really go out and play the records that I'd been playing a year or two earlier. It had to be kind of, you know, harder stuff to appease the crowd. But, you know, I, I did gigs where 
I, you know, I, I did a gig um, on Christmas Eve once up north where someone just got shot in front of the DJ box as I was playing and killed, you know. And, and, and I had police coming down to London to interview me about it. And there was another one as well in Windsor where someone, yeah, got killed, basically. In, I wasn't actually playing, but I was in the club, you know. So it was pretty, um, it's pretty nasty business going on. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't a vibe. <laughs> no. Absolutely not. So, I mean, it wasn't just some something that, that was made up by the authorities. It was definitely something which had to be dealt with on some level, right? But Yeah, definitely. Um, it seemed like the tactics that they used were like, I'm not sure if heavy hand is the right word, but it's like, it's like when the authorities go after a certain kind of music, it's like the kind of moral panic that you get about kind of rap lyrics, you know, in the States or whatever, or certainly in the, you know, in the 90s, there was this whole thing. Mm. And it's the kind of thing more recently in the UK with drill, for example. Mm. Like, and it just seems like they associate, there's a tendency to associate music with the actions of the people who are in some way associated with that music. But I mean that the association is often pretty tenuous, right? Yeah. So yeah. So how did that, how did that affect what, what you were doing like musically in terms of what you were making in terms of like your, your career? Well, I think, I don't know when it was probably about 2002 or something. It, um, it just all got kind of pretty dark and I was making my second album at the time and it basically Garage just disappeared off the face of the earth as I was making this album and R&B just got really big. R&B got really big so I, would be, I remember going to DJ at places and I'd be going to play in the main room and R&B would be the chill out room, the equivalent of the house and garage room back at Laserdrome in 1990 or whatever. It was now the R&B room, R&B was in the big room and I was playing in the chill out room, like playing garage. And I I remember people asking me like, can you play R&B? Can you play R&B? And it's kind of like, well, yeah, I mean, I can press play on a record, but it's kind of not what I really do. Um, so yeah, it started to, the the garage thing really took a massive dive, and I remember as I was making that second album, you know, that second album ended up being quite R and B influenced, really, and a much less. Um, it's funny actually. It was much less um, sort of MC driven. I think I sort of reacted against it and just thought, like, I'm going to go in this sort of more R and B direction, and then it, you know. Uh, it was a struggle to get that second album out, which must have been like 2003. Talking Loud as a record label just completely shriveled up. You know, I remember when that second album came out, there was one guy left in the office, just one single table in the record label with a phone and a computer and like all Ronnie size and crust had all gone. And, you know, it was just, we had to fight to get them to release it. And that was pretty much, you know, the end of garage you know so um and i started looking to do different things you know i was started up a band started to make sort of house music let me sorry let, let me just let me just interrupt you there and just to ask were you locked in to a deal with talking loud at that point like what was your contractual situation um yeah i think i don't know what happened maybe i i don't know how many albums it was maybe it was like a three album or five album deal but no i got dropped in about 2003 i just got you know that's it you're you're off the label you've been dropped and like that whole uh everyone on talking louds got dropped the the label just shriveled up and, and mercury 
uh, Mercury Records kind of took it over and there was a change at the top. And so, yeah, it was there, completely the end of an era. I was completely yeah. unsigned. And that's really why I went back to my label and started doing stuff myself again. Yeah, I guess, I, I mean, I said before that it didn't kill Garage, but I mean, I, I, maybe, it, maybe it did for a bit anyway. It's, it's crazy when you think about it now, because I mean, like, Garage is kind of like, and I know you're not, not completely identified for it, so sorry to keep going on about it. But it's I, it's kind of come back and it sort of has its ebbs and flows in a way, but it's never got back to that kind of where it was in 2000. I think it's probably fair to say. Would you agree with that? Mm. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you notice this with with a lot of genres. They They come through and they're brand new and it's very exciting and everyone in the press gets incredibly excited about it and you have your poster boys and girls of that particular genre and every publication writes about it and there's records in the charts and then they just kind of drop it it becomes not interesting anymore and there's something else going on i mean it happened with dubstep after garage you know probably i don't know three four five years later that was massive and then overnight it was just like completely dead and i think what's interesting is that all these genres have this this flourish at the beginning very very big sort of rise and then they just completely drop off um and then what's happened with garage is it's sort of crept back you know i i think between 2003 and 2008 it was pretty much kind of dead it was it, you know i was doing stuff for my label running a club night but it was very niche and very small and then the thing that kind of in re-enlivened it for me was you know the sort of funky sound that came 2008 2009 and i got really into that but i think going back to what i was saying about solidifying a genre i think it takes an initial flourish at the beginning a drop off and then if it's a bona fide uh, um, solid genre, it then becomes established as a bastion of the dance music heritage later on. And I think that's happened to Garage now. I don't think it's ever going to be... It's not going to have that initial flourish like all these other genres did. But now it just seems like, you know, it's a cool genre and people know what it is and they know, you know, the people who are kind of involved in the development of that sound. They know about new people who are involved in it and blah, 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 blah. And it feel, that feels kind of good. And for me, that's only really happened, you know, in the last sort of three, four years to me anyway, because I've heard it all so long. People are like, oh, mate, yeah, Garage is coming back. It's coming back, coming back, you know. And I'd be like, yeah, right, whatever. And but it just seems like now you can mention the word garage and people are like, oh yeah, garage, that's cool. Yeah, I like that. You know, did a little and the same thing's happened for drum and bass. And I don't know if dub it's about to happen for dubstep as well, because dubstep was about probably five years later. So maybe yeah, I know Scream's playing some dubstep again where he didn't play it for years and years and years. Um and so it just feels like it takes a decade or so after the initial scrabble for um you know to be solidified and become a pillar of the dance music story yeah 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 i mean dubstep's dubstep's a funny one i mean i was had some first-hand experience of that and you're right in that it it sort of burned extremely brightly for a sort of fairly brief period having taken ages to get off the ground so i've talked about this on the show previously but then 
like had this like it was kind of this boom bust cycle just like you described but the flip side of that was that there was this huge north american movement which was happening at the same time as the kind of bust cycle in the uk so you had like you know skrillex and excision and those guys just you know playing full-on arena shows playing this kind of weird version of dubstep you know which obviously makes sense to them but to to me and to yeah you know lots of the guys who were involved in that early the uk the proper dubstep thing was just it was just bizarre to me you know that that's watching that thing happen and seeing how big it got was just it was just strange man it was yeah like, yeah and the music's just like oof, I, I i don't understand it i yeah i don't, I don't get it <laughs> but um so tell me like well, you, you just mentioned that you, you're running a label and you, you're running nights. And I guess the kind of pin I've got is your album that came out in 2020, the Madrigada album, which is a musical departure, but actually makes a lot of sense if you're familiar with, with you as a kind of musician. So tell me, like, what led you up to that point of sitting down to make that album and you know at what point did it become a project tell, tell me about that generally yeah so that that came about it's funny because we sort of you know skipped 15 years but <laughs> that's sort of what i was asking like um give you the kind of backgrounds to it you know that's like what what led you to that yeah okay okay so i'll, I'll, I'll yeah i'll fill in the the, the gaps sort of quickly so i'd say um Garage died off about 2003, got dropped from the label, started my label up again, started doing club nights, prolific club nights, um, started putting out vinyl, um, releasing things again, got into sort of funky sound around, you know, 2008, 2009, really enjoyed that. And then... Let, I, me, let me stop you there, mm. um, because funky is quite an interesting topic, I find, generally, because that was something that came out of the left field for me, but actually made a lot of sense. So tell me about your your experience there, because it sounds like it was kind of quite sort of reinvigorating for you. Yeah, I, that's when I became excited to kind of play out again. Um, and it was just, you know, kind of coming... Uh, I was interested in some of the sort of more broken beat stuff like Bugs in the Attic and um, things like that that were going on that were a little bit more, you know, lighter, kind of funkier things. And then and then the funky thing came along, you know, with like, uh, you know, Zed Bias doing his neighbourhood sort of funky remix of that and Deneo tracks and sort of crazy cousins and people like that. And I suddenly felt sort of re-energised again around that time. And then that sort of led on probably to, you know, 2010, 2012 to... Um, I remember just saying, like, I don't play garage, I play bass music, you know. And then, so so just playing a lot of kind of more bass heavy stuff but still slipping bits of garage in and i think um it, yeah i was still releasing stuff from my record like i did the you know wiley record from the drop um things like that they were probably all around i don't know 2010 or 11 or something like that um and then so uh, and then after that uh what happened got into cycling <laughs> um and then yeah, and then I, I started, I guess in the 2010s, I started doing a lot more production for other people. So working on other people's records, um, you know, doing, 
uh, I don't know, things like Baseline Junkie with um, Dizzy and, you know, still doing remixes and releasing stuff on my label. I started doing kind of stuff for much more sort of stuff for TV and adverts. And then, you know, that kind of led to more production stuff. And then really my my output sort of picked up again as an artist, I'd say, in about 2016 when I started the my label up as a different name, 892. And I had like the AJ Tracy records and that kind of led to, um, you know, the Freya Ridings record more recently. And then, you know, writing like Stormzy's Crown with Jimmy and doing a lot more kind of more mainstream type production and really... I'd always wanted. So this is going back to Madrigada now. Let, let me let me let me stop you there because I wanted to ask you about sort of collaboration generally, and it sounds like this is quite a decent sort of lead into that. So so is it fair to say that like in that sort of two thousand tens periods, you were the collaboration was like a major focus for what you were doing musically as opposed to being a solo artist? Yeah, I think so. I was definitely I became much more interested in writing with other people and starting to make records for other people with other people and it felt less like my whole reason was just to kind of make mj cole records you know i was i was really enjoying working with other people and yeah collaborating on stuff that wasn't necessarily that didn't have my name on it yeah did you ever feel that the kind of mj cole thing did you ever feel like that actually kind of like hung a bit heavy on you having that mj cole this kind of legendary garage guy yeah yeah i mean i've I've, it's become i think it's kind of goes hand in hand with what i was saying earlier when 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 the genre becomes sort of solidified and i sort of said that's felt um applicable in my mind for the last few years and i think that goes hand in hand with I'm I'm sort of proud of my name now. I think there were definitely years where I was definitely in the mid noughties, I was thinking of just like completely sodding it off and just starting different artist names and just completely putting it to bed. But now I'm sort of glad that I, I, I didn't do that. And I think people kind of understand, this is going back to the Magicada thing again, that they understand if they look into it, you know, where I come from and piano and all that kind of thing. And I think all of that sits well now under, under the MJ Cole um, label. When I was doing the Madrigada album, there was a big discussion about should it be an MJ Cole record? And there were people who were very nervous about that, thinking that, you know, people are going to hear this, be like, where's the garage? You know, what's going on? He's gone all soft and, you know, he's making all this piano strings music. Um, so, but the story behind Madrigada is that I'd, you know, obviously I come from piano and I've always played piano and I've always wanted to make a uh, piano record, I'd always, you know, annoy my management by just saying, I want to do solo piano records, solo piano records. Um, and the, yeah, that album came about, went for a meeting at Decca and they were doing a um, series of dance remixes of famous classical pieces, you know, and they, they got me in to see if I wanted to do a sort of dance remix of a famous classical piece. And I was just like, I couldn't think of anything worse, you know. And for me, coming from classical, it's kind of like sacrilege, really. And I was like, no, I've, I've really got no interest in that. And they were like, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I want to make a piano record with strings on it and stuff. And they were like, okay, cool, do it. And, th- and that was, I had an album deal within like five minutes. It's, it was quite mad. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was I was listening to it today and it, it really 
really works. I was trying to figure out what genre I would put it in, right? I'm not quite sure mm. where, where I would put it, but it, it really makes sense as an MJ Cole record, actually, now that you've mentioned that there was, there was you know, discussions about that. And I can just imagine how those conversations went, right? <laughs> the, kind of, the kind of strategy guys going, like, well, where can we place this on the chessboard? But yeah. I, I really think it does make sense as an MJ Cole record. So how, I mean, how would you describe it musically? Um, well, I mean, I describe it from my point of view as, uh, you know, the purest expression of my musical self, really. But that doesn't help um, genre-wise. So from the outside, um, I mean, it's influenced by listening to a lot of Niels Fram and Oliver Arnold's um, people like that, a lot of solo piano things, the very felt piano sound, some of John Hopkins' sort of solo piano stuff. Um, that's what I was listening to when I was making that record. And it and most of that record came from piano sketches that I, I just always do piano sketches. Um, people see on my Insta, I quite often do just piano improvs on, on Fridays. Um, and so I just had an iPhone full of voice notes of all these different um, piano sketches. And most of the stuff on that album came from those piano sketches. And then it got embellished with, you know, we, we went kind of 14 piece strings in the end with that. But um, yeah, it's always been hanging around in the back of my mind. It was, it was such a pleasure to do that album for me because it sort of felt like doing a first album again it felt like i think like when an artist does their first album quite often they've been crafting for you know five or ten years before they get the chance to make that first album so they have so much to draw upon that it actually comes together pretty easily which is why i think people have trouble with second albums much more often because they're having to you know work from a, a much smaller pool of ideas and time frame to produce like a body of work and so really for that Madrigada album it felt like I was a kid again I felt like it was me doing my first album I just had limitless inspiration and uh, it just flowed up I mean I did that record most of that record in about eight to ten weeks or something um, it came out really quick it just kind of poured out of me and I didn't even I didn't think about it or anything I was just on the total roll when I did that and it just flowed out it was it was it was it was very cleansing experience for me yeah I wanted to ask you about like the recording of it and you mentioned 14 piece strings there so yeah tell me about the um like the process of getting it down because it really sounds really distinctive actually I mean you've mentioned those influences but it's there's definitely um there's a kind of MJ Cole stamp on it as well. You know, I can I can hear, you know, I can hear Niles Fram. I can hear a little bit of John Hopkins. I hear where you're coming from there, but it definitely is its own thing, absolutely. And it, as I said, it does absolutely sound like you. So tell me about recording it and tell me about how you did it. Yeah, so so like I said, it became it, it came from piano sketches. It all all those pieces started at the piano, um, and I knew I wanted to have strings on the record, so I I just got a load of tiny little string samples together in the way that I know best. You know, the way I love to put music together is to have a big palette of sounds. So I'd have keyboards with samplers, um, samples mapped out of just loads of strings. And I'd start with the piano and these little string samples that would suggest certain harmonies and stuff. And it was all recorded on my upright Yamaha U1 with the 
Celeste pedal down, so with the felt over the hammers to give it this very intimate, closed piano sound. And um, I really wanted that whole record to sound completely natural and organic. You know, if you listen to the record, you can hear there's loads of my nostrils all over it. There's like clicks from my knuckles. Um, and really, it's interesting, that whole record, it doesn't have any drums on it at all, doesn't have any vocals on it whatsoever, like no songs, I think, and everything on there pretty much is recorded. There's there's some percussion, but that's me just hitting the piano with the piano mics on. That's how where all the percussion came from. I think there's an 808 bass in there, but that's the only thing that actually comes from that's you know electronic it's all pure recording so yeah it started off as um piano things string samples um and most of it was fleshed out like that and then i got uh, my good mate toby trip in who's a string arranger and i'd kind of mapped out most of the strings done them in sort of uh, spitfire strings and you know kind of arranged it and then i sent him all of that he embellished and you know, did a really good job, scored it out fully for the string players. And then we did two days at um, Rack Studios up in North London with 14-piece strings. Yeah, and that was just like the best experience of my life ever. And that was mad because we did, I, I don't know, there's probably 12 tracks on the album, maybe the strings play on six or seven. Um, and then so I, you know, had this process of having these huge string sessions come back and then just lay it all over the tracks. And quite a lot of it's combined with the strings I had there beforehand. It's a combination between sort of live strings and that. And, th and then that was it. The record was sort of done. There were a couple of things that we weren't that happy with. And... I think I think there's one called Reimagination on there and that started off as like a sort of fairly traditional sort of string piece and uh, I decided I just completely remixed it because it, it wasn't working so I just sampled it off as though it was a remix and that's how that one came out. But yeah, it was a very um, natural process just from piano through some strings to ears. I've never done one of those big string sessions. So what do you actually get back audio-wise? Like how many mics and, and all that stuff? Is it just an enormous range of stuff? Tell me about it. Yeah, so for a string session like that, that um, we, we I've done quite a few, a lot of strings in the last couple of years now. So you normally have a Decker tree, which is a three mic setup and a mono side thing. So that that's kind of the main focus, and that sort of hovers above the whole um, load of strings. And then we'd have spot mics on all the individual players, and then two, probably two two other pairs of ambient mics at other places in the room. So, yeah, you're getting back maybe uh, 14, like 20 tracks, I think. Um, so, yeah, you have to kind of get into it on, on, on Logic and group them together. And then obviously you'd have multiple takes. So there might be five takes and 20 tracks each. So, yeah, you're dealing with quite a lot of audio. But if you approach it in a um, organised way and on Logic, you can. it's actually quite... It's, it's a dream to do. Most of the mixing of the string goes on, you know, as it's being recorded. I didn't do a great deal to the, a lot to those strings at all. The, the engineer just really knew the room, had done strings in there millions of times, knew all the mic setups and stuff. So it was pretty easy. So did you mix the album as well? No, I didn't. Nathan Boddy um, mixed the album. He's done loads of my stuff in the last few years. Yeah, he, he did a really good job on it. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds great. I would definitely recommend anyone who hasn't checked it out to do so because it really is, um, as I mentioned, it, it's, it's absolutely you, but it's uh, 
well, as it, as you as you described it, uh, a pure distillation, <laughs> right? Um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. so I mean, so I guess like that pretty much brings us up to today. So, like, where do you see yourself as a producer now? I mean, have you got plans to do more of that kind of stuff? Because you've been doing some some more dancey stuff as well since then. So, how do you see? it developing from here yeah so i see um now it's uh, i am mj cole and i make um you know garagey dance records as 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 an artist and then i also now have this other um side to me which is the madrigada side so my focus at the moment is on making another major mj cole record and so i've had these a uh, couple of releases out in the last month or so i need and you got me and they're just um you know, to kind of get the wheels turning again. I did dub mixes of them, just released on my label. Um, and then I've got some more kind of vocal-led things uh, coming, the first ones at the end of August, and that's going to be the beginning of um, uh, a next album, a body of work for me. So that will be an MJ Cole record, which will um, have a lot of features on, and it's going to be like a family uh, a family style affair so it's me at the center but just bringing in all these like great people that I've worked with and it kind of feeds into the you know the whole thing that I've got into in the last year or so which is you know I've been twitch streaming like once a week like doing tracks live on my twitch stream and then putting the parts up and people are taking the parts remixing them and we've been having like remix contests and then you know I've got discord server that's connected to the twitch channel so it feels like this next phase of music is going to be a lot more like inclusive and um it's not just me locked away in a studio, not speaking to anyone. It, it's very much more collaborative and it's going to be like a celebration of um, other people's talents. So, yeah, that's my focus at the moment. And then um, after that particular phase, I I would love to make... I want to make a solo piano record um, in the same vein as, as Madrigada. And I definitely will be doing more of that. Um, I, I'm also scoring things for sort of film and TV, which is much more on that side. Um, but I'm kind of finding that I've got quite a unique position in scoring because I'm able to do the strings and piano and full orchestration stuff. But I've also got a pretty good background in, you know, dance music. And, you know, obviously, you, you know, I've made quite a few records. So I'm... Um, that's pretty good. So yeah, I see it as MJ Cole and, you know, making a kind of popular garage record um, and then also being able to do the piano thing. I mean, my dream would be able to do a live show the same way John Hopkins has, where he can play like some banging techno with visuals and then sit down at the piano and play felt piano and, uh, you know, do that. So I want to be able to do it all, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean you can as you just described because people do do it and like if you've got the the wherewithal then then why not right um okay so what you've just said segues nicely in, into my next question which is one that i have asked pretty much everyone who's come on so far which is about the album format because you you, you mentioned that you're moving into a like a new mj cole album but albums are uh not what they used to be i mean they they actually like they fill a similar role in the kind of promotion and the kind of building of an artist's career, but they definitely aren't what they were in terms of like the way people consume music. So, so the question is that I've asked everyone, like, how do you see 
that? How do you see the album format now? And is it just an obvious thing that you do? Or is it something that, you know, should be seen a little bit differently now? Well, I mean, the reason that um, there's been like, there were 15 years between my albums is because of this. You know, it's a constant, it's a constant battle and discussion going on. It's like, no, I'm going to do an album. I'm doing an album. And then you feel like you've got a couple of good records there. It's like, look, I just want to release this record. And and then, you know, people on the team would be like, look, we can make it part of an album. We'll just release a load of singles and then it will become part of an album. And then someone's like, well, you could just do like three EPs and blah, blah, blah. So it's been very tricky to sort of commit to albums. The, the, the Magigada thing on Decca was was perfect as an album project because it was a departure and it felt like it, it b- could only really belong as an album but um on the on the MJ side yeah it is oh man it's just always tempting just to release records like one every 6 weeks or whatever and just keep the flow going like that but i still believe that if you're going to have um a piece of music a long piece of music that um make sense in more ways than just single hitters then the album is still um the holy grail of formats i don't know if like you're saying before whether it's um the best idea in terms of marketing or you know maximizing your streams and stuff but for me as an artist uh still making a record that has a running order, that has an ebb and flow to it, that has like a theme going throughout it, that the, the artwork is related to the, you know, the title. It, you know, it all feels like it comes from the same place. I still don't think that's um, matchable in any other way, although it is extremely tempting just to stick records out every six weeks, you know. So, I mean... Yeah, who 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 knows? Who knows? But I'm still I'm still on the album I'm still on the album side, you know. But I, I don't know whether we're gonna release some of my stuff um, incrementally beforehand. Maybe you know five or six records beforehand that form part of the album, and then the the second half of the album pops in all at once to complete the the, the record. The difficulty with that is that you're if you start releasing records before you finish the album, it, it, it's quite you're having to predict the sound of the album. You're having to predict the mixes on the album, things like this, you know. So. Yeah, it's gonna hard to shoehorn things in, you know, with with the idea that you're gonna have an album out in you know six months time. So yeah, it's it's tricky all of this. What do you think? I mean, what you've just said there about um, releasing stuff before that's supposed to be part of a campaign, but you haven't finished the music for that campaign, absolutely resonates with me because I've made the mistake of trying to do that before and it really is really causes problems right because yeah because you don't know where it's going to go and sometimes things can really change quite a lot in the in the last you know in in the last few yards of, yeah. of um, you know getting to the finish line of a project like that often things change a significant amount right and if you've already if you're already deep in uh you know singles releases it's yeah problematic extremely problematic but yeah i mean i'm I mean, the question that popped into my mind when you were just saying all that was, and in the context of what you were saying before about where you want to go with the live show, is like, are you tempted to put the two projects together, if you see what I mean, like the sort of Madrigada type stuff and the MJ Cole stuff? Are you, are you or the, the kind of dancey stuff, I mean? Yeah, I, 
I would love I would love to do that. Like you know, I referenced you know John Hopkins before. Um, I I I'm I'm not sure whether that's going to happen immediately. I think with uh, this MJ Cole record um, that's going to be sort of more dance based, studio based. I think um, that will form the majority of my um, live show. I am planning to do a live show starting at the end of this year, and you know, kind of leading into next year, which is kind of quite exciting for me because I DJ for so many years, pretty much on the circuit. Not necessarily, not necessarily with a purpose, but um, I'm really excited about um, doing a live show and actually playing my music and playing live. You know, being there. I'm thinking it's going to be uh, quite a simple setup to start with, and then maybe expand outwards. So starting in a kind of fortet, John Hopkins, um, tourist, that that kind of vein, and then be able to add on, you know, singers string sections that kind of thing but i'd love you know my my dream would to be have a night at the albert hall that's my music and i get to play piano and uh do electronics as well and have a show like that that's my dream so is that live show that you just referred to the one that you've got in the works will that be the first one that you've done um no i did well i did live shows ages ago around the sincere album i had a full band and and toured with ronnie size um and did you know probably 20 shows or something yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah, um but so no i i've only just dj'd um you know in, in in the intermediary years so yeah i'm pretty excited about um getting out there and doing that and you know just the idea of it being my music and being able to perform I always feel a little bit kind of bit spare when I'm DJing I kind of feel like I'm not doing enough and I want to have a bit more control over the music that's coming out I DJed off Ableton for years and actually that was the most fun I think I ever had DJing because I could use stems and effects and um, just kind of manipulate it a little bit more I I don't know I've never been 100% comfortable with just pressing play and playing a two track bit of audio so I think um, the idea of doing a live thing is, is, is pretty appealing to me now feels right at this time yeah and it is a completely different thing and i think if you get it right then it's not only a lot of fun doing it but like it really adds something artistically and you can you know do different things with the tunes and like you know do them perform them in different ways and i think and i think for your stuff like you know it could really be be great so yeah i'm excited to see it yeah and also i think it you know that's another um argument for having an album you know if you're going to do a live show i think you know releasing an album as a major piece i can't say body of there's so many things i just <laughs> shudder to say i can't say the b- 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 body of work <laughs> a major i think i said a long piece of music before or something like that but yeah it makes a lot of, a lot of sense to have a bigger record out like that an lp let's say um an album and then the live show is connected with that. I think it's a lot more, it makes a lot more sense to a live show to be connected to that as opposed to just like a stream of singles that are all performed on the night. I think because you can get much deeper into it creatively, you know, the concept behind it. And with Madrigada, that was really interesting. And we really came up with a, a whole... Um, 
idea, this idea of madrugada, that it's like this special period of night between, you know, very late night and early morning. And that fed all through the music and it really felt like a whole. And that's what I'm hoping to do with this next record, the the MJ record. Um, So, yeah, I feel that the live show is, is a really full... It just makes sense doing a live show of of an album. Yeah, which brings me neatly to my last question, which is throw me some albums which were influential on you growing up. Yeah, I mean, so really early ones like that would be my parents record collection uh stevie wonder hotter than july was something that i just discovered in you know my dad's record collection what a beautiful album to discover when you're young so that was there and there were things like i don't know 10 cc that i used to listen to this is before i was buying records it was just what was available um and then my you know my my dad was sort of into music theatre. He was, you know, in the West End and stuff. So there was a lot of Sondheim, um, Gershwin, Noel Coward, you know, that that kind of music theatre stuff around and records. So so they were pretty influential. But then when I started buying records or buying tapes or cassettes in the 80s, I was listening to quite mainstream stuff. So like the Prince albums, like Madonna albums, David Bowie stuff, um, Frankie Goes to Hollywood, like Duran Duran. And then as I kind of got a bit more, as I got older, I was pretty much into, you know, drum and bass and stuff. I had, I loved The Police. Um, I loved Sting as well. There's one um, record of his that's called Bring On The Night. That's a live album played in um, Paris and it's got like Kenny Kirkland's on it and Branford Marsalis playing um, soprano sax. That was like a, a pretty influential record to me. And then I've always loved the kind of funky side of thing like, you know, Jamiroquai records, um, you know, Emergency on Planet Earth. Um, and then more recently, I'd say it's the stuff that's influenced the Madrigada stuff. So yeah, a lot of Nils from. Uh, Oliver Arnold, um, just people like that, really. So yes, yeah, a, f- a few, few cheesy albums in there. But I'm, 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 you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not ashamed. There's no such thing as cheesy music, in my opinion. I guess I should say actually as well that I, you know, obviously I listen to shitloads of um, classical music as well. So, you know, like Marta Argerich is my favourite pianist, like Hungarian pianist. And, you know, when I was a kid, I was listening to her, like Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto. Um, and I used to listen to, you know, Daniel Barenboim sort of playing and uh, like Ratmaninoff piano concertos and Debussy and um, Ravel string quartets, things like that on the other side as well as I'm going along. Yeah, Romantic Period stuff is great. It's my favourite as well. That that sort of late late 19th century, 20th century stuff is just amazing. Cool, man. Well, this has been this has been great. Thanks so much for doing it. It's been been awesome. Absolute pleasure, Paul. Thanks so much, man. Yeah, that was MJ Cole. And I really, really enjoyed that. It was um, great to get his input on so many interesting topics and hear about his journey as a producer and quite an eventful career, actually, with some highs and lows, some really high highs. And by the sound of things, some, some quite low lows too. But he's back doing some really really great stuff I mean he's always done great stuff but I mean he's just kind of like back at the top I think with that album 
Madrigada that we talked about. I'm really looking forward to seeing how he develops that side of his recorded music output. And yeah, just a great guy and a really interesting conversation. We didn't get quite as much garage history as I as I anticipated out of him. And we are working on an episode now to get that side of things onto the show. Yeah, I'm going to get someone who's going to be really authoritative and really dig into it with them. Right, so as I mentioned at the top, we're going to be launching some sort of subscription thing to support the show, to get some money in for it and pay for some advertising and just generally build it. It's probably going to be on Patreon, not 100% on that, but probably. So what I want from you really is some suggestions as to what extra content you would like as part of a subscription offering. So we're going to have to see the main podcast and that's going to be free to air, always going to be free to air. I'm not going to put that behind a paywall, but there's potential for doing, you know, bonus podcasts, having other sorts of bonus content, maybe some interactive content. So like Zoom calls or feedback sessions. If you're a producer, maybe you want some feedback on your work, on your mix downs or whatever, all that sort of stuff. I'm just interested in what would be valuable to you as a subscriber to this, a potential subscriber, hopefully a subscriber to this sort of thing. So yeah, get us in the discords to discuss that, hotflushrecordings.com slash discords, or hit me on Twitter, at ScubaOfficial. I'm looking to launch this probably the end of July. So we've got a few weeks to kind of hash it out, a few weeks to kind of like figure out what's going to be a really good offering, really good value offering, and maybe give people who want to spend a bit more, get a bit more out of it, the opportunity to do so and get what they want. So yeah, I'm interested to hear any suggestions that you may have, hotflushrecordings.com slash discord to do that primarily. Okay, I think we're done. This has been over two hours, so I think we're going to get out of here. Leave us a review or a rating if you haven't done already. Five stars, please. Thanks if you have done that. I mentioned the discords already. Hit us up in there if you've got anything to say. And follow that Spotify playlist. Link in the show notes. Right, yeah, we're done. I've been Scooby. This has been the Not Diving Podcast. I will see you back here same time, same place next week for another episode. Thank you. Thank you.